Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted November 10, 2017, after President Trump's visit to Beijing, we consider WPI fellow James Knowles' recent blog posts on the factors there and in Washington that could still lead to a U.S.-China trade war. We'll also spotlight top stories in the WPJ Fall issue, cover line Constructing Family. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Thanks, David. While President Xi and Trump wrangle over trade, a subset of that huge topic, foreign direct investment, has received too little attention. Once upon a time, FDI flowed in one direction and one direction only. Companies in the U.S. and other so-called industrial powers invested money in China, at first to set up manufacturing joint ventures, but most recently, U.S. FDI to China has veered toward the Chinese consumer, whose spending habits are starting to look a little like those of suburban American teenagers. U.S. FDI into China has grown from just over $11 billion in 2000 to about $93 billion last year. Goldman Sachs estimates that over 146 million Chinese now earn over $12,000 a year. That's a middle-class income in Chinese terms. That's a slice of people almost as large as the working population of the United States. But the real transformation is occurring in the other direction. FDI increasingly flows into the United States. Chinese investment into the U.S. was only $196 million in 2006. Last year, it reached $42 billion almost half as much as U.S. firms are now spending in China. That trajectory, if it continues, will be a huge boon to U.S. job creation. Of course, Chinese firms are subject to scrutiny in such deals, and for good reason. The Treasury Department's Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, known as CFIUS, was set up in the Cold War to keep so-called dual-use exports out of the wrong hands. This means materials that could be used, say, to build a nuclear weapon, or acquisition of a company that builds sophisticated missile guidance materials. Last month, though, Donald Trump intervened in the sale of a company that makes silicon chips. Barack Obama did the same thing during his last term, only the third and fourth times that presidents ever did this. Expect to see more of it. The definition of national security has already been blurring due to the importance of technological advances, like silicon chips. But in an overtly protectionist administration like Trump's, there is sympathy for representatives in Congress who would block such acquisitions for all sorts of reasons. China, which purchased AMC theaters a few years back, would be endangering the minds of American youths, some say. Others say the largest ever purchased by China, the 2013 acquisition of pork giant Smithfield Hams in Virginia, is a clear and present danger to America's food safety laws, not to mention its pigs. Never mind that Smithfield's products are made in America and thus subject to USDA health oversight. The fact is, Anyone who can weaponize trade is certainly capable of weaponizing pork for rhetorical reasons, too. Some restrictions will always make sense, but Smithfield and hundreds of other Chinese-owned employers have a history of adding rather than cutting jobs in the U.S. And remember, they have pigs in China, too. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. Today, I'm directing the United States Trade Representative to examine China's policies, practices, and actions with regard to 
the forced transfers of American technology and the theft of American intellectual property. As President of the United States, it's my duty and responsibility to protect the American workers, technology, and industry from unfair and abusive actions. Uh, we have a very good relationship. People say we have the best relationship of any president-president, because president, he's called president also. Now some people might call him the king of China. President Trump's relationship with China and its increasingly empowered leader, Xi Jinping, is clearly more a roller coaster than a bed of roses. Trump's angry accusations over Beijing's trade and currency policies and failure to better stem North Korea's nuclear and missile development have alternated with the kind of fawning over Xi he displayed shortly before his firsthand visit, highlight of November's whirlwind Asian mission. The trade representative's examination of Chinese practices could set the stage for U.S. commercial sanctions or other retaliation and Chinese responses in kind, in other words, a trade war. That prospect and the underlying factors involved in the strategies of both nations are considered in a series of World Policy Institute blog posts by WPI fellow James H. Nolt, an adjunct associate professor at New York University who's lived and worked in China. And we talked about it all for this podcast just before Trump's arrival in Beijing. Professor Nolt, welcome back to World Policy on Air. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. To understand why the investigation Trump ordered might portend a trade war, you provide some helpful history on trade regulation in America, with Congress playing the major role initially and for more than a century thereafter. Say more about the mechanisms involved and the various political motivations in that earlier period. Yeah, this is critical. Of course, the first century and a half of the United States history, tariff laws in particular, were the jealous preserve of Congress. Congress, uh, according to the Constitution, has the power to regulate trade, and so tariffs were also the main source of federal government revenue until the institution of the income tax in 1913. So for most of the history of the United States, Congress's setting of tariff rates was very critical for government revenue, for Congress's own power and influence, for uh, the the relative security and income of of all industries that involved tradable goods. So it really had a tremendous impact. But beginning in the Great Depression, which is partly blamed for the excessively protectionist policies of Congress in the in the 1930 Smoot-Hawley tariff, uh, <clears throat> President Roosevelt with a Democratic Congress supporting him, gradually began to transfer some of the power over tariff setting to the executive, uh, the president in particular, and and the U.S. Trade Representative's office was created to help negotiate uh, bilateral trade agreements with foreign countries. So beginning in 1934, the U.S. entered into a a period which continues to this day where the executive plays a much bigger role in uh, international trade policies, and in, indeed the, the Congress has, has uh, increasingly ceded its power over tariff making to the executive. We know Roosevelt was the motivating force. How did Democrats and Republicans generally split on the issue? In those days, uh, in the 1930s, the Democratic Party uh, tended to be uh, largely pro-trade, um, and the Republican Party was the bedrock of protectionism, as it had been since since its foundation in the 1850s. And indeed, the predecessor parties, the Whig Party and the Federalist Party, were both protectionist also. 
the Republican Party was the main author of the of every successive increase in U.S. tariff rates, uh, including things like the McKinley Tariff in 1890, which helped launch uh, William McKinley from being a leading representative to being a Amer- uh, president a few years later, um, and also the the Smoot-Hawley Tariff under President uh, Hoover in 1930, which was the highest level that tariffs ever reached in U.S. history, whereas Democratic presidents tended to reduce um, tariffs. For example, in 1913, when Woodrow Wilson came in, tariff rates were cut. Um, they're also cut <clears throat> under Grover Cleveland in the, in the 1880s. So there's always been a kind of, for a long period of time, a kind of bipartisan, uh, bipartisan conflict where one party would uh, the Republicans or their predecessors would would tend to increase tariffs, and the other party, uh, the Democratic Party, would uh, would stand for freer trade and lower tariffs. Uh, that began to break down in the 1970s um, as the whole U.S. relationship to the world changed, and so now we see a somewhat of a reversal with a lot of the Republican Party and a lot of the Democratic Party being pro-free trade, but with some reservations in both parties. We should explain that the 70s uh, were a period of uh, post-war economic revival for Germany and Japan, newly industrialized nations, including China. Uh, they put uh, pressure on U.S. business interests. They put pressure on Congress. And specifically, Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974, under which Trump ordered the new investigations of China. Say more about uh, that transformation and that uh, section of the Trade Act in particular. Yes, well, most of the post-war period, uh, trade agreements were negotiated multilaterally, that is, with a large number of countries at once, through the GATT, the General Agreement on Trades and Tariff. And uh, the GATT had went through successive rounds from uh, the period right after World War II up toward the end of the 20th century and did significantly reduce tariffs. But the one big problem with the GATT is it had very weak enforcement provisions. And so it would be one thing for countries to agree to the rules. It would be another thing if they violated them. And so what the U.S. Congress did in 1974, because they were concerned that some countries were, uh, were violating the, the trade rules, and particularly subsidizing industries or what's called dumping, that is selling uh, below cost uh, in international markets and thereby undercutting American businesses, they wanted to enforce uh, the trade regulations better by allowing the U.S. executive, again, by transferring power to the executive so that when the executive investigated and found out that a country was violating established trade rules that they had agreed to, the the president, without additional authority from Congress, could increase tariffs on that particular country's exports in order to pressure them and hopefully induce them to come back to agreement with the United States on following the rules. The thing about Section 301 is, when the World Trade Organization was created in the mid-1990s and most of the world's countries joined it, it did have uh, much more robust enforcement procedures. And so the Section 301 largely dropped out of use, but it remained on the books. Trump has now revived it. Talk about the recent Washington hearing on China mandated by Section 301, which you attended. First testimony by the Chinese witnesses. Basically, this came about... As, as I mentioned, Trump resurrected the use of the Section 301. No, none of his immediate predecessors had used it because they had been working through the more multilateral framework of the, the World Trade Organization. But Trump has criticized multilateral agreements generally, including the World Trade uh, Organization. And so I think part of the reason he 
revived Section 301 is that the U.S. could um, operate bilaterally on a country-by-country basis and try to uh, implement sanctions even without going through the WTO procedures. So uh, this past summer, he uh, instructed uh, the U.S. Trade Representative to begin investigating China under the authority of Section 301 specifically because of alleged uh, Chinese violations of intellectual property rights of American companies. And so that's the scope of the investigation. If the investigation concludes that China has been systematically violating agreements about intellectual property rights, then that would empower President Trump uh, and his administration to to implement sanctions against the Chinese. Now, the Chinese position, which was which came out during the hearing, is that the United States shouldn't use this kind of bilateral authority. They should use the WTO mechanism since both the U.S. and China are members. And so they object to the whole procedure of how this is being conducted. And they also uh, pointed to the uh, evidence that China itself is taking intellectual property much more seriously and has established a series of special courts to deal with it. And so the American, uh, they argue that the American action is uh, is really unresponsive to the progress that has been made within China to enforce intellectual property rights better. Let me understand this. I mean, I usually think of intellectual property rights as publishing books that are under copyright, but this <laughs> seems to this seems to go much beyond that, forcing American companies to reveal technology secrets if they want to do business with their products in China. Do I'm, am I getting that correct? Yeah, I mean, intellectual property rights is really a broad label. And for you and I who uh, occasionally write books and, and articles and so forth, we think about copyright, which is indeed one part of it, but it also includes, for example, software, which is obviously a big part of almost any product nowadays, the operating software, which is proprietary, and it's meant to be secret. It shouldn't be you know, copied by people who are not licensed to use it. Uh, another, fa- another element of that is the various production processes within a company that may be what are called trade secrets. In other words, I have found a way to manufacture something or I found a way to uh, design my product and to, uh, to research it and so forth that, that is, has advantages over others. You should not steal that information. That's proprietary to me. That's considered trade secrets under the law. That's intellectual property. And many of the testimonies in the hearing were about American companies whose uh, internal information about, about technologies and production processes was allegedly stolen by Chinese interests. Stolen or, or they were forced to reveal it if they wanted to do business? A combination of those. In some cases, the, the allegation is that they, they, uh, American companies entered into agreements to share technology um, with the with Chinese partners as part of the condition for doing business, but even in those cases, the arguments of the plaintiffs was that the Chinese then subsequently violated those agreements because, of course, those agreements would also include protection for that intellectual property and, you know, uh, prohibitions against using it outside the framework of the agreement itself. So, it's it's always ultimately about the theft of intellectual property according to the plaintiffs. It's not just that you know, we had to enter into agreement. Of course, they could have said no to the agreement, but the problem is not that they entered into agreement. The problem is the agreement, in the view of the plaintiffs, was violated. 
Of course, it's harder to predict what Trump will actually do than what he'll say or tweet to please his base, which leads us to what you've talked about before on this show, a corporatist approach to analyzing any nation's foreign policies, recognizing the various domestic, economic, and political actors who have a powerful say. Remind us how that differs from traditional so-called realist and liberal approaches. Well, the realist approach is that national governments uh, are kind of a united uh, force that represents the broad interests of a nation in international politics. And so realists generally ignore domestic politics entirely and talk about the interests of state as if they're sort of one general unified national interest. Liberals, on the other hand, recognize that there may be some, uh, some differences in interest, but they tend to think of politics as being uh, broadly speaking, about finding the basis for cooperation and for countries having a broad, uh, a, a broad basis to explore economic interdependence and cooperation, and they worry less about the uh, obstacles to cooperation that are, you know, specific uh, interests within a country that may fight against it. So I, I try to look at, at both sides, both the incentives for cooperation and the resistance to cooperation, and how that can generate conflict both internally within countries and, and across international relations. So what is your corporatist view of likely U.S. action on China trade? Well, one of the things I've blogged about is that I do think that from Trump's perspective, first of all, he's been an ideological nationalist for decades now. This is not a new idea for him. He's constantly been advocating strengthening the U.S. national power and rejecting multilateral rules-based institutions such as the NAFTA or the World Trade Organization that seem to bind the United States into a law-governed international system instead of a system that is driven by power. He likes power-driven system because the U.S. has considerable power, and he thinks if the U.S. Doesn't, isn't bound by rules in international politics, they'll be better able to assert their interests. But there's another sense in which I analyze Trump, and that is I view him as personally insecure in his office. and uh, beset by political forces that are aiming to remove him, perhaps by impeachment or other means. And so he's in, he's in a vulnerable situation politically, and therefore he may need to use trade politics and, may, and also perhaps uh, other international political moves, such as with North Korea, as a way to bolster his domestic political standing and stave off his enemies uh, domestically. So that's another sense in which international politics kind of... Uh, feeds into domestic uh, political concerns. To understand the likely counteraction, you argue that China should be seen less as a socialist monolith these days uh, than a sort of wild frontier of competing institutional and individual interests with a central government weakened by corruption and overreach. In fact, you write the capitalist ethos is more firmly and broadly dominant in China than in the U.S. Say more about that. Yeah, I think there's a, a real... Uh, disconnect between the China that I know and indeed lived in for a number of years, visit frequently. I'm, I'm probably going there again soon, and I've been there on an average of twice a year since I left. The, the, the China I know is very different from the kind of image of China that we often have in the media here, which is really decades out of date in the sense that, of course, China is governed by, it's a one-party state, it's governed by what's called a communist party, but that communist party bears almost no resemblance to the party that Mao Zedong built. Uh, its, uh, its membership includes quite a few billionaires and, and a lot of political, uh, private political 
business leaders. It includes uh, substantial parts of the state apparatus that are working at least as much as business people rather than state officials. That is, they're looking to generate business, to generate deals, to make money. It's not much of a labor party at all in the sense that you do not see people from a working class background anywhere near the high levels of the, of the party, and you don't see great concern for working people either, except insofar as the party's interested in stability. So it looks very unlike our kind of stock image of what a communist party is, and so I think in many ways it's important to counteract that to, when people think, oh, well, China's got this you know, powerful united communist state kind of Stalinist style. It's really uh, a, a wrong-headed picture about what China looks like today and how it operates. So, uh, in a way, the new power claimed by President Xi, uh, you see less as a sign of his personal victory than of his fear, not unlike Trump's, of losing control, or, or the government at least, of losing right, control. Right, right. I think both presidents are more insecure than the public really thinks, you know, uh, you know than the public appearances. Um, probably President Xi is, is more secure than uh, than Trump for the simple fact that it's not easy to remove him, at least for the next five years. He's likely to, to maintain his position. He's very unlikely to be. There's no impeachment or, or, or other procedure that could remove him from power. But at the same time, uh, Chinese leaders now for decades have been very concerned about uh, chaos. They all grew up during the Cultural Revolution period when China was in domestic chaos and, and stability and orderly uh, governance is really a very big concern by Chinese leaders, and they're also, as I mentioned, frustrated by corruption because even when the central government orders something to be done or sets a policy, there's many people throughout the country who do not implement the policy as written, who have personal interests in subverting, you know, whatever the, the, the uh, government orders. So it, it's, very, it's increasingly difficult for the central government just to snap its fingers and command and things happen. And one of the key ways that's a problem today is that there's a an ongoing struggle between the central government and local governments throughout China on how much to expand credit. Generally, the local governments are more bullish. They're trying to expand credit rapidly in order to pump up their local economies and to keep the real estate boom going, whereas the national government is a little more bearish in the sense they're trying to restrain credit expansion, partly in order to maintain the value of the renminbi to avoid the, uh, ex such extensive uh, expansion of credit that the renminbi falls in value because the central government is aiming for China's currency to become one of the stable and important world currencies. They don't want to have um, so much credit expansion that inflation uh, becomes endemic. So how do you see all the corporatist factors playing into a Chinese response to tough trade actions by Trump for his own reasons, political, psychological, and the potential for calamity? Well, this question looks forward to the next blog that I'm now working on, which hopefully will go up in a week or two. I think we're going to take a little break for the holidays, but uh, this is really the important thing. And of course, it's a, it's a little bit speculative because I'm looking ahead rather than looking back. But in my view... Um, the 19th Party Congress that's just concluded in China has strengthened President Xi's hand. He had to be extra careful not to have disruptions or problems in the U.S.-China relationship during the months before the conference because he wanted to come into the conference in a powerful position relative to 
to his domestic constituency. But now that the conference is over, he's in a strengthened position to push back hard if President Trump tries to do things that President Xi does not see in his interest. And I think there's two key areas where Trump's interests will clash with those of President Xi. One is in, in the idea that Trump has repeatedly pushed that uh, China's large export surplus to the United States, Trump claims is undermining the American economy, it's a threat to American jobs, and uh, Trump wants to see more U.S. exports and fewer Chinese imports as a way to balance, uh, move toward balance in U.S.-China trade. He's defined that as the metric of success, and if he doesn't achieve that, of course, it's going to look, because he puts so much focus on it, he'll look like he's failed. Uh, and yet, he doesn't have too many avenues to achieve that without uh, using some kind of trade pressure, such as tariffs, that he might be able to implement using the Section 301 powers uh, that we talked about earlier. And the other big issue, of course, is North Korea. And both the United States and China do not want North Korea to have nuclear weapons, but they differ in what they're willing to do to get rid of them. And as you know, I've blogged several times suggesting that Trump may be, willing, may, may be more willing to push military action as a way to pressure the North Korean regime. And I, I think the Chinese are much more uh, interested in keeping things at the level of diplomacy and economic pressure and not, the United States, want, not wanting the United States to use armed force. But they're also worried that too much economic pressure will also produce uh, chaos to that fragile economy. Um, yeah, that's, that's a concern the Chinese have had, although, um, frankly, I think uh, North Korea is so little dependent on trade, and I've written about this in blogs too, that there's not a whole lot that China could do that would actually uh, decisively destabilize the regime. Sort of the last major element of trade that they still have is they import uh, fuel from predominantly from China, but uh, even if that were cut off, they could, with a somewhat more cost, use their own domestic coal and convert it to gasoline and other liquid fuels the way the Germans did during World War II. It's not an impossible thing to do. It's a little bit more costly than importing it from China. But they have no reason to succumb to trade pressure. They have the ability to manage an economy at the low level it's operating uh, with almost no trade whatsoever. So I think we shouldn't overestimate the ability of China to influence North Korea through trade. Some analysts say that Xi's newly expanded powers give him a, a real and psychological advantage over Trump, especially uh, shadow as he is by uh, accelerating investigation of Russian connections, and that Trump might settle for some short-term headlines with uh, some small-scale deals rather than challenge the full U.S.-China trade dynamic. What's your view on that? Well, I think that will definitely be the outcome of this trip initially. I mean, he's bringing along a group of business leaders. There are already deals in the works that they can sign, uh, that they can sign agreements about, which will symbolize the areas where there is mutual interest between U.S. and China. But for, by my analysis, that's not enough for Trump. You know, if Trump were a normal American president facing normal political circumstances, he could play the game that way. In other words, he could go and make some incremental progress, get some good headlines, everyone would be pleased, and you know it looks like sufficient uh, gain. 
But Trump really needs a big win in order to reverse his fall in the polls and also be able to turn the tables on his domestic political opponents who are getting increasing ammunition, for example, from the Mueller investigation into his Russia tie. So uh, I think Trump can't be satisfied with such a small gain as those kind of symbolic agreements might represent. And of course, they won't really have much impact on the U.S. economy or on the various metrics that he specified as being important, such as the balance of trade. So I, I think and he, he'll have to push hard on the two main issues where there really are fundamental differences eventually, whether it comes at this trip or later, that is on the predominance of Chinese exports over, to the United States over imports from the United States and also on the problem of North Korea keeping its nuclear weapons, which I think is very hard a very hard uh, thing to change. Let me pose a devil's advocate uh, argument. I mean, we see, uh, especially as the Russia investigations continue, Trump has the ability uh, to redefine things for his base, which seems to believe him no matter what he says. Whether I mean, if he says there really isn't anything there and this is all a sham and it's fake news, uh, his base holds on. His his uh, his uh, national polling rating clearly can continues about 39, 40%, maybe a little below that. He seems to play largely to his base, and uh, for him that's almost enough. And when he goes on his uh, big political style, campaign style rallies and sees the crowds and sees everybody that he can see agreeing with him, uh, that seems to be enough for him psychologically and, and politically it keeps his base intact. So could he, you know, whatever actually happens, make this trip look like a success, uh, which will serve him at least for the time being? Yeah, I think in the short run, that analysis is right. It may be enough for him to get a psychological boost over being treated as a serious world leader and so forth. But the only poll that matters, of course, are the elections, which are coming up in 2018 and then again in 2020. And his support has always been a minority, and it's falling. The Republican Congress has not been able to implement any of his major initiatives so far. The tax bill is out now, but it, it seems to have a lot of opposition from various quarters. It may be just as difficult, if not more so, than the Obamacare replacement, which failed to pass. So if he doesn't have any major domestic legislative achievements, and if he has no major foreign policy achievements, if major problems like the North Korean possession of nuclear weapons continue on into the 2018 election so the Democrats can say, look, you promised to rid North Korea of nuclear weapons, you didn't do it. You promised to uh, balance trade with China to reduce China's you know, competitive inroads into American industry, you didn't do that. You promised to stop factories from moving to Mexico, you didn't do that. You know, when these facts pile up and are presented in the context of election campaign, that's when it's going to matter. And if his polling numbers at that time are below 40, uh, a lot of Republicans in swing districts and marginal districts may be vulnerable. So I think this still has to weigh on him because, because certainly if, if, for example, the Re Republicans were to lose control of the House or even have such a slim majority that a few defecting Republicans uh, could risk impeaching him, then he's much more vulnerable uh, when the new Congress comes in in 2019 than he would be uh, if the Republicans could maintain their current majority. So, you know, yes, in the short run, that may, may be enough, but his situation is 
is really desperate enough that he re- he needs a big win somewhere in order to justify not only to the broader public but even to some of his base that is going to wonder given all the promises why he didn't achieve most of them professor Nolte, thank you my pleasure thank you for calling world policy institute fellow james h Nolte, an adjunct associate professor at new york university previously lived and worked in china and returns there later this month for the WPI blog, he's posted recently about political realism and private power and their link to a possible U.S.-China trade war. Since we spoke, the Beijing summit came off as a festival of flattery and fawning. Treated to a Tiananmen Square military parade that he declared magnificent, Trump also became the first U.S. president honored with dinner in the Forbidden City, palace home of Chinese emperors for centuries. Trump, in turn, praised Xi as a very special man, and ignoring his past accusations that China was raping the U.S. in terms of trade, he said only that the U.S.-China relationship is a very one-sided and unfair one, but, quote, I don't blame China. Who can blame a country that is able to take advantage of another country for the benefit of its citizens? I give China great credit. Bilateral commercial deals were unveiled that could total $250 billion when or if they finally play out. Relatively small in the great scheme of things, Secretary of State Tillerson admitted, but no major changes in underlying trade dynamics were detailed. Trump said he was positive that their joint efforts could eliminate the North Korean nuclear threat, but no major new Chinese pressures were announced. And Pyongyang dismissed the U.S. president, normally so fond of name-calling, as a lunatic old man. Featured in the WPJ Fall issue, you'll find articles about defending families from terrorist recruitment, about the drawbacks to Latin America's responsible paternity laws, and about the dark side of the international lottery cartel. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Interim editor Jessica Laudis, managing editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern.